Welcome to Executive Tools, Executive Feedback, Chapter 1, Wickedness, Part 1. This cast answers these questions. Do executives give feedback? Do executives get feedback like managers? How is executive feedback different from managerial feedback? Well, if we want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. Here we go. So, wickedness. <laughs> yeah, I know. I tell you, there's a story behind it. Wicked happens to be one of my all-time favorite words for all kinds of reasons. The colloquialism that is largely owned by Bostonians and so on. A great, there's a great uh, Broadway play called Wicked. And I just find it to be a particularly interesting uh, ethical, moral word. It has the strength of its convictions, let's put it that way. And this cast is special because one of the things that we've done, guys, with manager tools versus career tools is we always, manager tools and career tools, we always have actionable guidance. But the fact is, the re one of the reasons I delayed so long on executive tools, and Mike and I talked about this for years, was the issue of actionability and specificity because it had been my experience coaching executives is the number of executives who simply believe that the rules don't apply to them gets to be, <laughs> I know, <laughs> it gets to be a significant enough number that we get blowback to various pieces of guidance. Well, I, you know, I don't need to do it that way because I got to where I am now doing it a different way. I'm like, yeah, dude, have you not heard of the famous book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There? And so we agreed, Mike and I talked about this for years, that Executive Tools was going to give us a chance to be a little bit more expansive to help executives understand the underpinnings. And the reason for that is when you have a great deal of organizational authority, mistakes that you make, even smaller mistakes, have bigger ramifications. And if you don't understand the why of organizations, of economics, of human behavior in organizations, of societal forces on organizations, you're like a babe in the woods. It's embarrassing. In fact, you can have an entirely successful career, a professional career as a manager, doing professional things, and then you get promoted to be an executive, and you are immediately seen as an amateur. Mm -hmm. because, because you don't know. And you might be able to get away with not knowing as a manager, because what you are doing is so tactical, so operational, so in many cases, linear. You might be able to get away with that. You cannot do that as an executive. To be an executive is not cookie cutter-ish. And so if we don't address some of those Things that I think some people who are big fans of manager tools would say, this is kind of esoteric. Just tell me what to do. Well, <laughs> it's, it's not that simple. And this cast is a classic example of that because I have been talking to executives and managers about feedback for 30 years. And as it happened, a number of things came together recently. One was Wendy shared with me something about wickedness, which we'll share in a minute. And the other thing was is that Managers were saying to me, have been saying to me for years privately, look, Mark, you're asking me to do this and I'm doing it. But, you know, it kind of stinks because my boss doesn't do it for me. And I'm like, yeah, I got to tell you, executives don't. They just don't. And it's hard to explain to a manager that even though it is the executive's job to give feedback, the executives themselves are not getting 
feedback. And that's partially what this cast is about. By the way, this is the first time we've ever done something in a cast. Uh, Mike, I'm sure you noticed it. I originally had written a cast that would have ended up being six parts because I so wanted to cover the arc of feedback for managers and executives and go into all the details. I thought it'd just be wicked fun, uh, pun intended. <laughs> and then I realized, then I realized I, I couldn't do it because it would be 20 parts. And, and, you know, you just, I don't want to take half a year to talk about one topic. So we have four bullets in this cast, two of which I put in the show notes. You'll see if you're, since you're a licensee or listening to this, if you get the show notes, uh, to the right of them, they say TBD, to be delivered. It's almost like, no, we'll do chapter two. And we may not do it in two weeks because there is so much to talk about. Okay. Now, all that said, I, I want to get into the details here a little bit. Believe it or not, guys, some executives are exempt from getting feedback. And if you work for an executive who is exempt from getting feedback, you're much less likely to get it from them. It's just a function of how people are. And to tell you the truth, guys, there are some executives who are specifically exempted from giving feedback. And, and that's for good reason, too. Are we going to get into that? Yeah, but not is that all like in this a chapter time. to be determined. Ch chapter 31, maybe. Okay. All right. Mike, I've got to figure out how to deliver this guidance in such a way that it's that it's consumable for everybody. And and there are too many forces working on this particular junction of professional life, executives and feedback to simplify. And so I realized that this very first cast about it has to be about one of the underpinnings that I'd be willing to bet nobody knows. And it's frustrating for me because I want to get, I want to tell people what to do. Not not because I know, but because I've seen what works and what doesn't work, right? Okay. What's the likelihood of uh, one of our listeners being an executive that's exempt from getting it or giving it feedback? Oh, of one or some or or, or are you asking for a percentage? Percentage, yeah. Well, I'm just going like, okay, does, is there somebody listening who goes, look, yeah, I'm one of those. I don't, I'm, I'm exempt. It's like, meh, maybe you're not. Maybe you're yeah, not. it's, okay, it's less than 5%. Okay. Yeah. And generally speaking, if you're not in the C-suite, you're not exempt. The problem is the organization acts as if they are mm -hmm. because there are no sanctions for the failure to do so. And this is part of what being an executive is. If you're a manager... And there are no sanctions for doing or not doing something. You believe, you reasonably believe that, therefore, I don't need to do or not do that thing. Sanctions are necessary at some levels. At the executive level, sanctions almost cease to exist. But if you have learned that sanctions are one of your guide guardrails, and then there are no sanctions, you think, therefore, you can do what you want. But the problem with that is you, that is thinking as an individual. You have to think as a member, as a representative of the organization. It's the, le, le, I always get this wrong, l'état c'est moi, right? I am the state. And I know that's royalty and we shouldn't liken executives to royalty, but the idea that you are the organization, it's like the Texas Rangers saying, one riot, one ranger. Yeah, they did send the rangers. They sent me. I'm the Rangers, right? And, and executives, 
Don't think that. Modern people today, when they become executives, far too often focus extensively on the power they have and not on the authority. And if you don't know the difference between power and authority, folks, that's a future cast. But believe me, the world today is drunk on the issue of power. And the problem with that is ethical growth stems from authority and not power. So here's the outline. That was long. I started going <laughs> on that and I just couldn't. Okay. And we have another special event hearing uh, happening here today. Mike is here in Pebble Beach with me today. We are having a manager tools leadership offsite and in a, in a special event. It's not just Mike and I, which <laughs> used to be the leadership. Now, yeah. Kate and Sarah, Kate Horseman and Sarah Sintas are both here. And Wendy Lord is also here to help us with the administration of the two days. And we are here in my house. I'm in my office, in my normal location. And Mike uh, is sitting at my dining room table with a portable rig. And, uh, and yeah. interestingly enough, weirdly, we're on a Zoom call. That's right. Which is kind of <laughs> Which is completely odd. I'm... I can yeah. literally see your office door from where I am, but yes. we're on a Zoom call. So we just don't we just don't know how to record in exactly. next yeah. to each other. Yeah, we don't we don't want to put our faces next to one another and use the <laughs> no, same microphone. No, please. I think Paul Figiani, our audio engineer, would go, no, don't do that. And as it happens, I have a Leroy Neiman painting of Sandy Koufax here in my office, and you have a Sandy Koufax painting over your left shoulder i do uh, which i can see on zoom it's pretty great yeah i see a yeah and there's yeah. a dodgers jersey here yes there 32. is that's a sandy koufax yeah there's yeah lots lot of sandy koufax stuff all right so let's get to the work all right so uh we had four topics four four items in the outline we're only going to cover what two of them today the first one is the, the concept of de facto and de jure behaviors which probably throws everybody for a loop. Oh my gosh, what is that? <laughs> next, next, we're going to then talk about what this cast really was, in, at least in theory at a high level, is about the wicked environment. And then the two topics, the two items that are to be delivered are managers can get feedback about their teams from an executive, which ought to get some people salivating. And managers can also get feedback, again, from executives about their measures. And this is something that most managers don't understand about how there's an order of magnitude difference in executive feedback to managers and so on. And we'll get into that, but it won't be in this cast because otherwise it'll be 10 hours long. Cool. Okay. So let's talk about de facto and de jure behaviors. Yeah. I got a question before leading into this because I think this oh, is yeah. relevant. Like, I mean- You've heard the saying that executives don't get performance reviews, right? Mm -hmm. And we've said that before on the on oh the, yeah, we have on the that. show. So, doesn't that suggest that they executives shouldn't get feedback too? Yeah, that's a bit like saying because the Dodgers didn't win the World Series this year, they're not destined to win it every year. I mean, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to deduce the wrong thing from a piece <laughs> of data. Okay, so I want to unpack that. So it's a great question, and it'll take me a minute, but but we'll start with, I just want to make the case performance reviews and feedback are two very different things, and people link them together in I their minds. You, I thought you but, might. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you're right. Executives don't get performance reviews. So let's start with the idea. 
It is our continuing contention that performance reviews are not good feedback vehicles. And, and for the record, guys, I'm sure I've said this so many times that those of you, all your licensees, many of you have known, we've known for years. I just recently had dinner down in San Diego with our good friend, Steve Holden, and his wonderful wife, Christy. And I think they've been listening. He, he's been listening, and I'm sure he has foisted it upon Christy for 16 or 17 years. Um, so Steve's surely heard me say this a hundred times or a thousand times, which is performance reviews were never intended to be feedback vehicles because they were intended to be succession planning documents. And I say that because, again, people believe that performance reviews, that's the genesis of your question, of course, is that they're a type of feedback and they're connected to feedback because they're both a part of the performance communication system. And I get that, right? That's fair, okay? But hopefully people don't believe the old saying. And then we go further and we take the argument to another level. And this is the kind of stuff we didn't often make time for in manager tools. The reason executives don't get performance reviews is not because they're so freaking powerful that we wouldn't deign, we wouldn't dream of telling them how they're doing. That's the mistake people make. Oh, when I'm an executive, I don't have to have a performance review. You fool, you're misunderstanding the underlying principles involved here. The reason executives don't get performance reviews, because if you really are an executive, you don't need a performance review because you get one indirectly and it's published every quarter in the Wall Street Journal for the entire world to read. Now, okay, I have said that to a thousand, 10,000 people in my life and people immediately assume it's some sort of cynical response, but it's not, okay? If you're truly responsible for the entire organization as part of its cadre of executives, interestingly, Mike, I've been trying to figure out how to put this, and here's, here's my first take. I haven't written it down yet, so I don't feel strongly about it yet. But one of the problems with executive life is that people think it makes them more of an individual when, in fact, the organization and society and the system they're operating them in, actually operating in, actually makes them less of an individual the moment you become an executive. That's the problem. People focus on the power, their individual ability to do things, when, in fact, you ought to be accepting the mantle of responsibility and becoming essentially becoming a representative of the organization. But look, if you truly are responsible for the entire organization, the feedback you'd be most interested in would be the feedback that the firm gets. And that means feedback from customers and the marketplace, if you think you know, more broadly. And those things are, and this is where people, again, are just so wrong, complaining about profitability. Essentially, those kinds of feedback items come to you or captured by the metrics we use to help us understand how we're doing, things like revenue and profit and margins and stock price. Now, guys, don't get me wrong. That's not why you manage the company. It is how you understand what you're doing is working. And we understand that those measures are, by definition, inefficient. Oh, you guys are just going after profit. No, we're not. Profit happens to be a really useful metric, you know, yardstick. But it is not the reason we do what we do. And, and let's go further. 
those of you in governmental and academic organizations, this is one of the reasons why executive performance in your organization lags your corporate peers and usually by a boatload. Your senior executives skirt the performance communication systems just like their corporate peers do, believing mistakenly that skirting it is a legitimate perk when it is a fact an illegitimate or corrupt behavior to not behave in concert with the needs of the organization. They are asserting their individual power rather than accepting their moral authority. But in the case of academics and governmental organizations, there's no corresponding market metric system to provide feedback how they're doing. And by the way, that, that creates some really bad juju in the organization. By the way, I mentioned, I said this to somebody recently. It was bad juju. And they said, well, what is that? I said, you can look it up. <laughs> it's in the dictionary, juju. It's really bad. I've never news. looked it up. Yeah, bad juju. Okay. Now, I'm going to go further because we're getting down. We're going down. We're mining deep into the core, the magna, the molten <laughs> center of the whole idea here. The line about you only get a review. If you're, if you're truly an executive, you only get a review you know, through the journal. It has another facet, which is the part where it says, if you really are. If you're asking for a performance review, you're just proving that you're either not an executive or you don't understand that you aren't an executive. Because if you were an executive, you'd know better than to ask. You would just read about it every quarter in the journal, which, of course, is a catch-22, but you're, you're getting paid the big bucks now. We assumed you knew, understood that you were smart and you should be able to figure this stuff out. Okay. All that said, it's this... I think it's humorous. I think it's interesting. Some people would say it's cynical. Um, but it really is all around, dancing around, the executive world's dirty little secret about performance reviews. Nobody gets them because nobody wants to do them. And here's why. Think about it for a second. Do you think the VP of Human Resources is going to spend his or her political capital to get the CEO to write something down about her COO? No. Nope. No, she's not going to. He's not going to. And the CEO still wouldn't do it even if the VP of HR did insist. All the CEO has to say is I'll brief the board verbally on how Terry, his COO or COO, is doing. That's all they ever want. Okay? And here's another thing that you ought to start realizing for those of you who are executives. All this is because at the highest level, HR can't threaten the writers of reviews because they only have referential role power. And their referential role power is reference to the person they'd be trying to threaten. The VP of HR for a division and the division president, the VP of HR can't say, hey, where's my stuff? You owe me stuff. The staff person doesn't say to the commander, uh, sir, you have to do this <laughs> or I'll have to report you. On the other hand, if you're a low-level manager or a senior manager or even a director and the VP of HR for your division president said, where's my stuff? You're going to get it to him or her. The problem with that 
is that they are not speaking with any power formally because they don't have any power. They're a staff person, sorry, HR, and their power is reference to their boss. And there are times, in fact, when HR asks you to do something and you should say no and make them come down there and tell you what to do from your line commander. Now, unfortunately, what ended up happening is the VPHR doesn't go talk to her boss, the VP, the division president. They just up one level to your boss, and your boss caves like a paper cup and says, oh, yeah, sorry, the VPHR says you got to do it, so you got to do it. Like, no, come on, dude. Stand yeah. up for yourself. But but not all executives are at the very top, right? Yeah, they're right, okay. But this whole conversation shines a light on one of the fundamental root causes of managerial inefficiency throughout the world. When top people abjure the organizational systems, they knowingly or not, and I would argue they totally knowingly do, unless they're really deeply corrupt, they inspire other people to follow their example. And look, when it comes to performance reviews, this means that the CEO's directs probably don't do reviews on their directs. And then some of their directs think they can get away with doing the same most likely the folks who think they have a good enough relationship with their boss and the HR person who, by the way, only has referential power anyway. Now, as an aside, guys, the solution to this problem is the VP of HR talking to the CEO and specifically exempting certain top-level leaders from the typical organizational systems and codifying what system they will agree to. This is trivially easy. Hey, boss, how would you like to not have to worry about reviews? <laughs> well, the smart CEO goes, well, I'd never really worried about them <laughs> anyway, but okay, <laughs> keep going, right? It could be as simple as the CEO committing to putting a verbal briefing to the board about the performance of each of her directs on certain board meeting agendas. It could be as complex as initiating a system like Session C's, the old GE thing, which, by the way, we'll do a series of podcasts about, for the top 100 or 250 managers and executives in the firm. That's one of my most fun consulting assignments ever. I wish I had hours of videotape of me sitting in those meetings with senior executives uh, reviewing the top 100, top 150 people in an organization and the clarity and the specificity that these executives talked about. If you want a sense of what that's like, guys, read the book Execution by Larry Bossidy, single best executive written book ever. Okay, all that said, pay very close attention to this next. When you're at the top of your organization, be very careful of the age-old executive challenge of the accumulated difference down through the organization of de facto versus du jour behaviors. Most executives don't understand it, and it hurts your organization. So that's, again, this is a long lead-in. We're 20 minutes into this gas, and I still haven't gotten to the meat of it. De facto, guys, many of you have heard de facto and du jour. If you took a law class, you probably spent several classes uh, on it. De facto means something that's done, but is not necessarily sanctioned. De jure means that which is done according to standards, rules, or laws. So, for instance, the way you might have heard this before, in a democratic republic, if the military stages a coup, 
the government they form would be referred to as the de facto administration. They are, in fact, administering the country. The de jure administration is the one that was duly elected, even if it has no power, right? They're not actually able to do anything because the military's in charge and would shoot them or hang them if they tried to do something. You might also hear the phrase lawful administration, which means the same thing as de jure. Jure as in jury, as in juror, as in the legal system. All right, my friend. Why don't we stop here and pick up later? Good. Take care. Bye, everyone. 